And I, I firmly believe, especially for those who have jobs, that you allow your nine to five to support your five to nine until your five to nine becomes your nine to five. You're listening to the Redefining Wealth podcast with Patrice Washington. In today's episode, we sit down with serial entrepreneur, author, and my husband, Gerald Washington. He says we have to stop just starting businesses and start thinking about building empires. Hey there, this is Patrice Washington from patricewashington.com, where we chase purpose, not money. Welcome to another episode of Redefining Wealth. If you're an OG listener or a purpose chaser, welcome back. I am so pumped up about today's episode. So my husband has been on the podcast before, but usually not really being interviewed. We're just kind of talking about, uh, we shared 10 years. What did we share in the beginning? It was 10 lessons from 10 years of marriage. And then he was with me on the blessing of downsizing episodes. The first one and recently the update. But we are celebrating the release of his new book, his very first book, uh, Don't Just Start a Business, Build an Empire. And so he's officially uh, doing an interview on today's episode. And you guys know how he cuts up. So just be prepared. Um, If you're new to Redefining Wealth, welcome. You're joining us at a phenomenal time. Uh, Here's what you should know about us. In this community, we believe that wealth is so much more than just money and material possessions. So if you only came here because you thought I was going to be talking about budgeting or investing or saving or credit, we do that from time to time. But here's what I know. I know and I truly believe in the original definition of wealth that says that wealth is about the condition of well-being. And after being known as a personal finance expert for just about a decade now, what I know is that I can talk about budgets all day long, but if I don't help you shift your behavior in every area of your life, you'll never really stick to the budget to begin with. So what we believe is that money becomes a byproduct of you shifting some thoughts, some beliefs, some habits, some rituals uh, that you have in your everyday life. And that's what we talk about here. So I hope you enjoy yourself. I think you're going to enjoy yourself. So go ahead and subscribe now. And I know you're going to enjoy yourself because I have to tell you these wonderful things about the podcast. I'm so honored. So two years ago, I attended an event called Podcast Movement right before the launch, literally three weeks before the launch of Redefining Wealth. I went there with no podcast, no podcast cover art, no description, no theme music, no nothing. I didn't really understand fully uh, what we were going to do for the podcast. It was kind of dropped in my lap, if you will, about a week before that point. Last year, I returned to podcast movement uh, right before my one-year anniversary, sharing how we had hit almost 250,000 downloads and best practices, had a wonderful breakout session Uh, met amazing people and I was over the moon. I was thrilled with what I was able to create in a year and the feedback and the audience and community that this podcast had grown. And now this year, I am one of the opening keynote speakers at Podcast Movement in Orlando. Yay! As a matter of fact, when this episode comes out, I would have spoken the afternoon before. So this hits on a Thursday. I was speaking... I will be speaking by the time you hear it, it would have been the Wednesday afternoon before. 
And I'm so honored to have an opportunity to share what we've grown together in these last two years, not even quite two years, but to be recognized by my peers and by such a wonderful organization. I am just so thankful because everything that this podcast is, so much of it, I learned through speaking to attendees and just meeting folks and going to sessions at podcast movement. So to have an opportunity to speak on that main stage in front of, I believe, like 3,000 other podcasters, my peers, is a blessing. And so if you're thinking about getting into podcasting, you're already into podcasting, I really suggest that you put podcast movement on the top of your list for 2020. You definitely should be in the building. It's just phenomenal and such a great community and culture. And the other thing is that we were nominated for podcast of the year by the Plutus Awards. And so people in the financial community may know what that is. It's a big award ceremony that happens at FinCon. And in September, we will see. But just to know that we're a finalist in the podcast of the year category, again, blows my mind. Blows my mind because two years ago, this was just not even a thing. And I'm just so grateful. Grateful for each of you who continue to listen and share and rate and review. So thank you so much. And the last thing I have to make sure I share with you is that I am hosting my very first live podcast taping. And I am so excited. I share this all the time. It is a blessing to be able to deliver this podcast week after week for the last nearly two years. But I record this from a small teeny tiny closet right next door to my home office. And I'm always imagining you guys. And I I literally have a visual of who I'm speaking to. But there would be nothing like being in a room full of you, purpose chasers and OG listeners, really being able to have dialogue in real time and answer your questions and just get that live energy. I've really been yearning for that. And so instead of waiting for someone to create the opportunity, I decided that I would do it myself. So on October 13th, I am hosting my first live podcast taping and I would love your support. I would love your energy. I would love to give you a hug and see your smile. Check it out at redefiningwealthlive.com. And if you are in or around the Atlanta area, I would love to see you. Truly love to see you. All right. Now, without further ado, let me introduce Gerald Washington. With a longstanding history of taking brands and businesses to the next level of success, Gerald's leadership, innovation, and business acumen leave only two words to describe him, empire builder. Today, he's building a family empire that includes several multi-unit real estate holdings, a transportation company, brand management division, and now transformational arm via his speaking, coaching programs, and the new book, Don't Just Start a Business, Build an Empire. Prior to this role, Gerald successfully secured major partnerships and endorsement deals with household names such as T-Mobile, Ford, State Farm, NBC, ABC, Fox, and BET. His passion for business and entrepreneurship started in his youth. In high school, he launched a profitable five-figure candy business. While attending college, he founded a marketing company that promoted national concert tours. And right after college, he launched a boutique real estate company with his then-girlfriend and future wife, you know her, Patrice Washington. (laughs) Within a few years, Gerald had built a multi-million dollar real estate empire, but that will all come to a screeching halt during the economic downturn 
of the late 2000s. He lost the majority of his businesses, lost everything, took a job at Taco Bell to feed his family, but he came back stronger and wiser. And I can attest to that. Without further ado, here's my husband, Gerald Washington. Welcome to the Redefining Wealth Podcast, Gerald. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for having me. He's laughing at how I said his name. Yeah, that was intentional. <laughs> I'm just saying it the way your mama intended it, right? Absolutely. Okay, well, praise the Lord. Welcome to the podcast. It's good to have you back. Thank you. Your last episode was about the blessing of downsizing. Yes. We got a lot of great feedback about it, so... Oh, I have yet again set myself up <laughs> and extended the invitation. We win together all the time. We do win together. And I'm excited about your most recent win, which mm. is, da-da, your first book. Yes. I'm so excited. Don't just start a business, build an empire. That's it. What you doing writing books? You know, I, I got to follow in the footsteps of my wife. She, kinda, she got three ahead of me already. I want to start by kind of unpacking your story because people have heard me share my version of our story of having a successful business and losing it all. For years, so many of our male acquaintances like Devon Franklin or Tim Story, shout out to those guys. They gave you endorsements for your they book. Did, they did. Paul Brunson. They've always said, but what about Gerald's version? Mm. Like we want to hear a man's perspective. So I want you to share our story in your own words. So for me, the, uh, my version of our story is together we started a thriving real estate empire. And on that journey, as the man in, in this conversation, I neglected to have a guide or a mentor to give me advice as I was on this journey of, of real estate. Did successful, well, we were very successful. We did well in what we knew and in what I knew. But when the real estate market decided to make a turn or have a change in it, I wasn't prepared because, one, I wasn't watching the market and I wasn't aware of what was going on. And then, two, I didn't have somebody to talk to about it besides my peers. And unfortunately for me, then all of my peers were at the same stage as I was with respect to knowledge base. And so the market crashed. And without a roadmap or a guide, I lost it all. And you saved a little more than I did. So we. We did okay, but I lost it all and went to go work at Taco Bell in order to feed my family. You just going to gloss over that? Well, well, yes, but no. Effectively, in, in New Orleans, when we were trying to rehab the last big part of our, when we went to New Orleans to try to rehab the last part of our holdings, I tried to, I had to get a job. I had you and I had Reagan to feed and I went everywhere looking for a job, government officials, police department, fire department. I was trying to do everything mm -hmm. with my degrees from Occidental. I figured it wouldn't be that hard to find a job, but it was it was terribly hard. And so now we're scraping up change to get milk and they come in and shutting the power off and banging on our door every once in a while, you know, every other week asking us for the rent money and never been in that state. So I'm driving a yellow van with 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 no gas money. So I had to go find a job. So it was either figure it out or not. And figuring it out for me meant by any means necessary. So I went to McDonald's and Burger King. They both told me no. Then I went to a place called Hardee's, which is equivalent to Carl's Jr. They told me no. And finally, I walked down the street to go to Taco Bell. Mm -hmm. And I told the man, I said, listen, sir, whatever job you have, I'll take it. 
I'll do whatever. I'll clean the bathrooms. I'll be the cashier. I'll make lettuce, cheese, whatever you need me to do. And they gave me a job. And they gave me a job. So I went from a, from a seven-figure business to $2,400 a month. But it, but it gave us some stability in the position we're in in order to feed ourselves. And then from there, I was able to maneuver my way. I worked at Taco Bell in New Orleans for about nine months. And then my wife, you decided to take a job in Atlanta. You are standing on, on my brother-in-law's couch. And it, it got even harder. I'm standing on the floor of one of our apartment complexes with no running, no, no hot water, no television. I mean, well, I'm on an uh, air mattress. And it's rough. Mm-hmm. And so I decided, you know, if I'm going to be rough, if I'm going to be roughing it, I'm going to come sleep with you on the couch. And I moved my Taco Bell job from New Orleans to Atlanta. And I went to work in Atlanta and Taco Bell. Um, and while you worked the job you worked, I worked mine. And we had one car and we drove 45 minutes in both directions to make sure that I can get to work. And you dropped Reagan off and drove 45 minutes and came back. And That was, oh, I, I don't goodness. even think people really understand. So if, for people who are in Atlanta, because I know a lot of Redefining Wealth listeners are, are in Atlanta. Yeah. We lived in Sandy Springs. So get this visual. Right. And the Taco Bell was in Kennesaw. Yeah. So that was deep in Kennesaw, deep in Kennesaw. So that was about 40, 45 minutes away Mm -hmm. from our house. And then the only person that we knew who we trusted with our daughter was in Powder Springs, I think it was called. And so I was driving another 20, 30 minutes to get to her only to come back to Buckhead, which was down the street from where we started. And that was every morning, every evening for several months. Right. It was rough, and, and we had to pick a babysitter that we could afford. Right. Like we just pop and put Reagan in the school because we couldn't afford it. Yeah. But we did what we had to do. And fortunate for us, you had built a relationship with, with, with Steve and his uh, previous manager, Rashawn, that all, they gave me the opportunity to be noticed. Mm-hmm. And while you're at work, they said, uh, what's your husband doing? Well, I was working at Taco Bell. And um, I was offered the opportunity to watch Steve's old manager Rashawn's home at night. Mm-hmm. So I would go to Taco Bell and be at work at 7 a.m. and have to report to Rashawn's home at 6 p.m. And from 6 p.m. till about 5.30 the next morning, I was sleeping on the floor of his house to make sure nothing happened as he was having construction done while they were on the road. I did that for three months. Mm-hmm. And I saw my family on the weekends. Yeah, because by then we had got a... Um Remember that old, what kind of car did we buy from the guy? He like took advantage of us. The old Mercedes? It was like, <laughs> that old little two-seater Mercedes. Yeah. And the guy played us and then he was did. getting tickets in the cars. Like all these tickets and things started popping up. That was just a mess. It was a mess. But you guys have, I mean, we we tell the story mm-hmm. just real quick to yeah. make the story three minutes on radio or five right. minutes on the podcast or 10 minutes on stage. But this mess was... I mean, we went from sleeping on the couch, and I mean, literally, Reagan sleeping on an ottoman, mm-hmm. member trees sharing the couch, to a two-bedroom apartment with no furniture. We slept but, on an air mattress. We slept on an air mattress, but it was our, our apartment. We went from that to Reagan getting to bed. We brought Reagan to bed first, and we got a television, one television. We got a couch. I mean, so people don't understand that the journey had layers to it, mm-hmm. and those layers— Presented an opportunity for us, one, to learn and to grow, but to appreciate where we were going next. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm on the floor of Rashawn's house. I'm watching his home at night. 
And because of my previous experience in New Orleans doing construction, I would send Rashawn notes on my, my beat. Of my, I'm talking my Blackberry was so broken. Oh, my gosh. The screen was cracked. The buttons weren't working. I mean, it, it was a di- it was shattered. Oh my, oh, it, it was terrible. <laughs> but I would walk around the house at night to, to look over the construction that the gentleman had did during the day. And I would notice things and see things. And I would send Rashawn messages just saying, listen, sir, this needs to be done. Maybe check this out when you get back. And I didn't know this at the time, but I was interviewing for a potential job in the future. And not intentionally, because in my spirit, I just wanted to be helpful. And, I, and honestly, I needed something else to do, keep my brain working while I was there at night. Those three months for me were ever changed because I went from my home in Pasadena that I foreclosed on mm-hmm. to the small apartment in New Orleans to now get back to sleeping on the floor and being able to walk in a space that will resemble the home that we have mm-hmm. in Pasadena. And so God just kind of maneuvered the conversation yeah. to show me different levels of it and to also remind me of where you can go. Um, Rashawn offered me a job. Steve's manager offered me a job to um, come work in the office. And that, for me, was a blessing. And the day you got the job offer, we burned your Taco burned Bell uniform. Burned my Taco Bell uniform. It sure did. I burned all but <laughs> Shout one. out to Taco Bell. We burned yep. everything but one shirt. That's right. Um, that you have framed. And the only thing I'll do now is own Taco Bell. I won't eat it. I won't drive past it, drive in the driveway. Well, you can't help driving past it. You don't. Not, not, not. Yeah. Okay, I guess right. I have to. <laughs> and sometimes Reagan plays you because she'll she say, does. take me to Taco Bell. <laughs> Are you kidding me? So that's the stuff that people don't hear, though. So yeah. they see all the titles and they see your IMDb and all the stuff that you've done. Um, and they don't really get to hear the backstory. So I'm glad that you get to share some of that. And I love that you share more of it in the book, but I want to get to why you actually wrote this book, why why you feel like this is a great time for you to have this conversation about not just starting a business, but building an empire. And so for me, I believe that in the book, uh, I tell a story in the book about my belief on the three type of people that there are in the world. Mm Mm-hmm. The employee, the entrepreneur, and the empire builder. And the employee is one um, who wakes up in the morning and go to work. And they work their job eight hours, and their boss provides them a check. They're comfortable with the responsibility of going to work and getting a check. Then as the entrepreneur, and that's the gentleman or woman who has the idea of a business, and they put their efforts into creating that business. And the problem with being an entrepreneur, nine times out of ten, is that we become an employee of our business. So we stick into that entrepreneurial effort so much by ourselves. We get so grounded. We end up working 40 hours a week and we become an employee of our own efforts. Mm. And when we get stuck in figuring out how to figure it out, that that's all we do. Right. Mm. And then there's the empire builder. And the empire builder says, I was an entrepreneur who decided to create a donut shop. And my donut shop lived on this street for so long. But I've always had the idea of becoming what we now call Dunkin Donuts. But the difference between the entrepreneur who created a donut shop and the gentleman who decided to create Dunkin Donuts is the desire and ability to create other managers that can support their efforts and help them build their empire. Mm-hmm. But you can't do it by yourself. So you have to develop you have to develop your concept, make it sustainable, and then teach someone else how to run that concept so you can expand it. And many times many of us don't look at how to expand our entrepreneurial efforts beyond us running it or looking at the different layers of income that can come from it. Mm. So I mean you already said that Employees are necessary. So there's yeah, nothing so. there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely but not. But I've also heard you say that we are all born entrepreneurs. So how does an employee fit into being a born entrepreneur? So as an employee with, with a job responsibility in your field, 
you have the ability to be entrepreneurial at the task at hand that you're given. Your boss says, do this. You identify a method and a system of doing your job every day. And you do it in a way that's entrepreneurial because you, you were given permission to perform it. And you perform it to the best of your ability. Um, the difference, though, is that many of us don't want to venture out to have the responsibility that the boss has right now, where he's, his responsibility is your check. Okay. You say that popular wisdom will tell you to find your passion and the money will follow, but you mm-hmm. disagree with that. So tell us why. I do because passion doesn't pay the bills. Like I, I sing in the shower and my daughter comes around the corner and she's like, dad, you can't sing. So I know I can't be a recording artist. Right. But my firm belief, my wife says this all the time, if you find your purpose mm. and you dive into your purpose, I, I totally believe the money will come. Because I'm passionate about singing. I'm passionate about football, but I'm only 5'8". I wasn't going to the NFL. No, no matter how fast I got, no matter how much I practiced, I just wasn't a possibility for me. Not in the position I played in, but I'm passionate about sports. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes we know what our gift is, but because we're not passionate about it, we don't pursue it. But really in pursuing it, we probably could have found our purpose. Like we could have found our way to the money. But you, I know for me, I watch people pursue a passion relentlessly that they are not gifted in. Yeah. And therefore, it, it never can really be their purpose yeah. because your purpose is supposed to be the foundation of you for me being able to build wealth and so if you're not going to be able to make money at it like when do you let go of the idea of like oh i'm just gonna follow my passion until the money comes yeah so for me in my book i talk about that there's a starting and end time to every entrepreneurial effort right and, and many times if, if you are passionate about something and you feel like it can make money i will put a start and end time on it meaning if if you start this project that you're passionate about and you give it 18 months to produce a profit. If it doesn't, we have to let it go. Mm. We have to put time frames on what we consider to be entrepreneurial efforts or ways of making money that we're passionate about, right? And I believe, I agree with you 100% that you shouldn't follow your passion, follow your gift. But using the framework of our conversation, if you're excited about, let me say, if you're excited about something and venturing into that excitement of of this business idea, put a time frame on it. Mm-hmm. And then if, if the money flows effortlessly and easily, and, and it starts to make money, then continue to follow because it, it makes money. But what about people who say, oh, this business was running for five years and it never had profit? Like, they're, they're, doing, they're doing the wrong thing. There's no business that should run for five years and not make profit. What about like tech startups? Because they say that all the time. Right. And so in my book, I use the example of Facebook, right? Facebook is a tech startup that for the first few years didn't make any money. But the key to that that conversation and understanding of that business model is they were using investor dollars to start their business. Many of us have these entrepreneurial efforts that we're using our family's income in order to pursue. Mm-hmm. If you have an inv- investor dollars and, and if, if you want to, a unlimited resource of funds to continue to keep trying this effort, whole different conversation from Johnny Joe, who wants to be a mechanic and open up an auto mechanic shop, but doesn't work on any cars in the garage right now. Mm-hmm. Has, right. Hasn't identified how many cars on the block he can fix how much he's going to charge, has has a consistent consumer base coming to him for it. He's just passionate about working on cars. In which case, it should just be his hobby. It should be his hobby. I think a, a lot of us are just running Sometimes. hobbies Absolutely. and calling it a business. Yeah. Business is profitable. It's not a nonprofit. 501c3s exist for a reason. But even to. those are profitable. They're very true. Very true. 
You talked before about people just wanting the sexy jobs, the ones that they think sound glamorous. Mm. Meanwhile, there are ways to use your gift of managing, leading, executing other things to make really great money in non-sexy industries. I think we have an example of that with our transportation business. We do. So can you just talk about that? Because I know people are like, I even when I tell people that you don't, uh, produce TV necessarily mm-hmm. anymore. They're like, why? Right, right. It's television. Right. I'm like, sometimes I think people have the wrong idea. They do. And even in television production, I consider myself an executive of the TV show. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I tell the TV production conversation, I always tell people that, especially in our field, working with Steve Harvey, he was the only person in front of the mic. And to that, he got paid a good check because he's talented. However, many times we don't even look at the 500 jobs behind the microphone that are that are making great money. Stage managers, grips, lighting directors, sound technicians, they all make great income. The the director, the camera operators, those people that are part of the union, they make great money. Mm -hmm. It's not as sexy as being on camera, quote unquote, but they're sexy at the bank. (laughs) And which one really matters? Right. So. Too many entrepreneurs, you say, go in circles, overthinking, overcreating, and attempting to overdeliver. But the end result is that they expend too much effort and energy and put themselves under too much unnecessary stress. Do you want to elaborate? Yeah. Nine times out of 10 is simple. And we do, do a great job of overcomplicating the simple things that we lose profitability. And an example of that is In-N-Out Burger. In-N-Out Burger has three options with French fries, Coke products, and a milkshake. And their lines are out the door. And they don't franchise, and they're successful. And I think they have some odd 100 locations. Mm-hmm. But, but they're a thriving empire, and it's simple. And what a lot of small business owners will do is go, let me add 19 more things to the menu. Let me confuse the chef. Let me confuse the cook. Let me keep adding. And beyond confusing the chef and the cook, let me confuse the consumer. Right. Because when we have too many options, we go into... Another thing, Cheesecake Factory. The Cheesecake Factory menu has 18 million items on it. (laughs) 18 million items. And then 22 million types of cheesecake. And you know what I do every time? I get the Miso glazed salmon with mashed potatoes and a drink. I don't even know what else is on it. It's too much. It's too much. I always tell this, and we tell people this even in Purpose to Platform, that, you know, you don't need to have seven and ten offers to be successful. No. Because if you have all of these different offers and too many packages and all this stuff, you make it hard for people to choose how to work with you. That's right. I don't even have three offers anymore. I have two that's right. Here's how we can work together. And if you look at the ones, that, the companies that are doing this successfully, like McDonald's, McDonald's has its staple items that don't get off the cheeseburger, double cheeseburger, quarter pounder, filet of fish, french fries. Why you know the menu so good? Well, you know, I shouldn't, <laughs> but I do. I feel uh, like that's a, I feel like I should take personal offense to that as the but everyone in my community knows, knows you don't cook. They know. Excuse me. It's a choice not to cook. <laughs> the kitchen is not my ministry, but go ahead. So McDonald's has those items on their menu. And companies that are successful at adapting new things do it seasonally. Mm-hmm. They'll bring you the McRib at a certain time. And then you buy, you get excited, then it's gone, they bring it back. 
That's not another item on the menu that you have to choose from. You get an opportunity to have it for a selected amount of time. So, so in your business, if you want to add certain items to your quote unquote menu, do it when the time is right. One, when you perfected your selected things that you do offer and then do it sporadically so that the consumer gets excited about it. And there's a supply and demand responsibility to it. Mm, that's good. Okay, so we have this concept we use in our house called what's the fastest way to the cash. Yeah. And there's this part in the book where you say, don't try to innovate when you haven't even begun to exploit what's easily accessible to you. So, you know what I love, Hmm. though? Shoot. The story that you tell about when you were in high school. Yeah. And the cookie machine. Yeah, buddy, that cookie machine got me in trouble. Can you trouble, wait? Can you trouble. tell the story though? Because I think it's a great illustration of how people miss opportunities every day. And I think that the biggest takeaway I have from you and watching you over the last fifteen years become this empire builder is that you always focus on the opportunities that people walk by every day. Yeah, the key. To, the key to my belief is that the key to. Being an empire builder is seeing the money that people miss. So my senior year in high school, I had a free period. Um, and I would walk by the cafeteria and I got to know the administrators and individuals. So I was able to go in the back sometimes and th- see things. And I went to the back of the cafeteria many times. And I would see this Otis Bucket my cooking machine. And everybody walked by it. It must have been sitting there for it. had to be sitting there for a good year and a half, two years because it was dusty. Mm-hmm. And so I talked to the school. I had a thought. I went home and asked my dad. I said, Dad, what do you think about me asking the principal to use the machine to now sell cookies? Now, this machine had been sitting there and it was dusty. So I figured if I asked Father Pilato to use the machine, no one was using it, that I, I could have the opportunity to generate revenue. Now, the problem was is that I told the school that I would give all the money generated to the senior class. <laughs> what and possessed I was, you? I was bad negotiation on my end. <laughs> So I'm going to take this machine, use my money, buy the cookie dough, and give the money back to the, to the senior class. Well, cookie business started booming <laughs> because we barely had any type of sweets at school anyway. And, and so, so we would go about 10 or 15 dozen cookies a day is what we would make. Wow. And so the revenue started to come in. Mm-hmm. And for me back then, I, today it's not a lot of money. But as a senior in high school... It was it was great change. Football season was over. Mm-hmm. You know, it gave me money to go out and, and, and do things. I didn't give the money to the student, student <laughs> class like I was supposed to. But what I forgot was that I was graduating. And Father Pilato had something over my head. <laughs> Little thing called your diploma. Right. And he kept my diploma until I, re, until I turned, turned in the money. Turned over the money. Yeah. But the key to the story is this. That cookie machine had been sitting there for a year and a half. Not only, not only had no administrators identified in a way for their classes or individuals to make money with this school had put it away as not an opportunity to generate more revenue. So the opportunity for me to make money presented itself. And I think many times we, we walk right past the ideas and opportunities that are right in front of us to make more money. A lot of y'all are doing hair for free. Mm. A lot of you guys are singing in the choir, which is great on Sunday but how about the opportunity of doing backup? I mean, a lot of you want to make more money, but you're walking past the opportunities right away. So the other thing that I take away from that story, though, is sometimes when we do find the opportunity and we acknowledge it, we're so excited and we rush into it that we negotiate a bad deal. Yes, yes, yes. We do. And and for me, it, it taught me along the way 
that you take your time. Now in our home, we'll take a, a day or two and we'll think through a concept or an idea or a contract that's on the table to make sure we're not missing anything. Because you have a day, you have some time, you have the ability to make sure you get the best for yourself. Running and racing into something has never proven to be successful for me. I know, I you know, one of the things that I talk about with my ladies in particular and in the programs that I run all the time is this idea of creating their brag binder. Mm. Because it's that reminder that, you know, they are worthy of a greater conversation as opposed to going, getting so excited and getting so caught up and being invited to the table that you forget there's a reason you're at the table or you forget that you actually have something to offer. And now the first thing that's put on the table, you're like, okay, like there's no pushback. There's no questioning. There's no negotiating for more. And I think in the long run as entrepreneurs in general, that, that definitely never wins. Yeah. I mean, and you have to sometimes remind yourself of how good you are to your point. Mm Mm-hmm. And then you have to sometimes be able to remind others of how good you are and then understand both of the, of the values. And then again, like you said, get no pushback, but like you, like you teach in purpose of platform, the brag binder is amazing thing that becomes a tool for you. So going back to, I'm sorry, I took you off on that tangent, but that story, I, I always love that story, but going back to what I was going to ask was about the fastest way to the cash mm. and how do you identify, um, if you're clear on your gift, if you're clear that it's more than just passion, how do you create the fastest way to the cash? If you're clear on your gift and you're clear on your passion, for me, I always write down the various streams of income that can come from an idea. Mm-hmm. And then from those streams of income, which one has the easiest marketability, has the lowest barrier to entry in the marketplace, and is something that I can either sell service or provide someone easily and effortlessly. And that becomes a fast way to the cash. Um, it becomes that that service item or product that you know you can move or get attract traction with right away. Many of us try to go for the for the largest thing on our list or the thing that, that takes the longest to produce. No, the, the point of business is to make money. Let's start generating some revenue as we continue to focus on the other ideas. Yeah. Because we always seem to want to dive into the huge project. Yeah. Like I talk to people all the time on these calls. And to your point, the, the grandiose idea is always the first thing they want to do. It's like you haven't even set yourself up to get a small win. Like you haven't launched a small something. And your whole plan rests on needing 15 people and tens of thousands of dollars And so many hours of manpower when someone else just went to Instagram and was like, I'm open for business. Here's here's what I have. Here's the link. It's like not not to oversimplify it, but it's also it also doesn't have to be as complicated. And I know that I'm the queen of overcomplicating. Yeah. and, And what I've learned recently is that many times people aren't expecting all that. Right. Many times we're trying to produce a deck and make it as perfect as we can. We're trying to we're trying to walk in the door with the right suit, tie, shirt. They want to see you at the table because what you have to say nine times out of ten is what they want to hear. Now there's certain places and, and situations where you have to be completely a hundred percent ready. Right. But but then again, most times you don't. Yeah, I think there's just different levels of ready. Mm-hmm. Like 
you know, if you are going in to meet with an investor, then yeah, you want to have your projections. You want to have your business plan. You want to walk in, you know, with your A game. But if you don't experience some of the smaller wins up front, you won't necessarily get to that version of ready. Like, I think there's a ready before the ready. Absolutely. Like, you got to accept the small ready. Yeah. And I used to be really bad. And sometimes I still have to catch myself with over complicating things because I'm a perfectionist Mm. and I like things to be pretty and I like it to be right. And I want, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when it gets in the way of getting to the cash, or making progress or creating the impact, like being on my to-do list for several weeks rather than just doing a version 1.0 mm-hmm. and putting it out there and letting people experience it uh, is like it's it, it, it wastes so much time. And like since we've been mentioning Purpose the Platform, like when I put it out there, it was first just to my list. And I was committed to if I could just get 25 people in there in this 1.0 version and hear their feedback and see their results. And after the first few weeks when people were like, oh my gosh, I have never thought of anything like this or oh my goodness, I didn't realize that I was you know, limiting myself or I had these limiting beliefs holding me back. And I start seeing their progress and their feedback. That's what made me feel like, oh, wow, I almost didn't release this because Mm. I didn't think it was perfect, perfect. I didn't think it was Ready Mm 2.0, right? But Ready 1.0 was actually good. We said all the time, progress over perfection. Progress over perfection. So... There's something else that I really like that you say from the book. And I'm not trying to gas you up, but the book is really good. You should gas me up. But I'm not trying to gas you up. I'm just saying the book is <laughs> it's actually really, really good. Thank you very much. Um, so I do have tons of notes. Um, and something that you said for years now and I saw in the book, too, is that you can get rich quickly, but it takes time to become wealthy. What does that mean? And why did you start saying that? <laughs> I was told it takes a long time to get rich. Mm hmm. And I, and, I, and that was a complete false statement, right? It it takes a long time in sustainability to become wealthy, mm-hmm. but you can get rich real fast. And I've been successful in business and have had ideas. We've had ideas, been around people who've had ideas, and those ideas have made money. Mm-hmm. You know, my buddy went to the NBA, got a contract for, he got a contract for $27 million, a signing bonus for $10 million. Hey, he's, he's rich right mm-hmm. now. Now, he has to manage his money and invest his money in order to become wealthy. Mm-hmm. And that takes time. That takes stocks and bonds and acquiring real estate and diversifying his portfolio. But by all sense of imagination, he's rich. He can go out and buy pretty much anything he wants. Mm-hmm. And so the saying that was told to me is that it takes a long time to become rich. I completely disagree with. Get out there and bust your butt and you can make some money. But to become wealthy will take some time. So to get out there and bust your butt, though. We've talked about overcomplicating things, but if you were going to tell someone what the first few steps are to not start a business, but build an empire, yeah. what were the what are the foundational things? So research is key and research the market that you want to penetrate and the industry you want to be involved in. Do your research. And I, I firmly believe, especially for those who have jobs, that you allow your nine to five to support your five to nine until your five to nine becomes your nine to five. Don't go out there and jump out there and quit your job. 
Say, say it again for the people in the back. Don't here and quit your job. Allow your job to fund your business because no business, every business should fund itself. So your job has to get you started until that business can take care of itself. So you want to research and you want to understand and study market trends. What is the fluctuation of the market you want to be in? And the last one on building an empire is don't hire family and friends. Oh, Lord. No, don't do it. Because those relationships, although they are great on the front end, mm-hmm. they have the potential to be very volatile on the back end. Are you speaking from experience? I'm speaking from experience. And I love my family. But when times get tough and money gets low and the responsibility of producing income for those around you that are closer than that are family, mm-hmm. if the understanding is not there, then now, now you can't go to Thanksgiving dinner. You can't go to Christmas dinner. You can't. Now ain't nobody bringing sweet potato pie like you expect because we're mad at each other. I would like to note that we have never not been invited to a Thanksgiving. We have never not been invited. <laughs> All of our family has always come. We've gone to this. But, but that's a real it's, thing. It's a true I thing. mean, because. Most people, especially if you're starting a brick and mortar business mm-hmm. where you need kind of all hands on deck, yeah. you the first thing you think is, let me get my cousins, my auntie exactly. and get everyone in. So how do you and we've heard horror stories yeah. about this. We really have. But how do you grow something that doesn't necessarily you have the empire builder vision, right? Or empire state of mind type of thing. And you see yourself going bigger, but you know you need support. You don't want to get trapped and become an employee of the business. But how do I not just ask my family for help? What are like, what's the alternative? It's very tempting. It's very tempting to utilize resources that won't cost you much. But that temptation will come as a detriment later on down the road. So maybe it's not time to expand today. Maybe we need to identify an SBA loan or some investor capital to now go out and be able to pay for the right talent to support you. But the answer is not hiring your family and friends. And if you do decide to do that, my firm believes you need to have the contract, a non-disclosure agreement, and some set terms and understanding that allow for an exit if necessary. But prepare yourself. We're big on that. Still getting things in writing, even from family, even from friends. Yeah, because it's all good when we first start. It's all good. But when the market bottoms out like it did in 07, everybody hates everybody. Yeah. That's I mean, that's the truth. That's the hard part. But how about people who feel some kind of way when you give them your your contract or you love sending a good NDA? So like (laughs) when someone goes, what is this for you? Like most people will kind of like bag back right, and go like, oh, you know, it's just something I thought I should do. But you don't have to sign it. How do you prevent yourself from even going down that route and kind of backing out of it? So so stay firm, first and foremost. And and. I always think about business or opportunities or partnerships in a worst case scenario up front first. And if you think about it in that way and you and you have the NDA prepared and you're thinking about the worst case scenario on the front end, then them not signing becomes a worst case scenario already. You only want individuals who are not afraid of the documentation put in front of them because it's mm. for a reason. Right. If you're scared to sign this or think you're too good to sign it or our relationship is too good to sign it, then you don't love me or respect me in the first place. Ooh. Because at the end of the day, this document stipulates that we're we're in good faith going to do something together, and we are we're okay with what's bound in in here. If you're not agreeing to sign that, then what are your true intentions or true desires, or what is your lack of knowledge about business? I don't need to be a part of your business anyway. Mm. At the wow. end of, at the end of the day, that for us, unfortunately, in our in our culture, it's 
it's what Big Mama wouldn't do. They sh- they shook hands and everybody held each other down, and it's been the detriment. Not anymore. And in, in our family, what we're teaching across any generation is is this is that the paperwork matters because it benefits you in the long run. Period. Period. Oof, that was good. Before I let you go, you didn't get to do this last time, so these will be new for you. So this is redefining wealth, rapid wisdom questions. I'm going to ask you a few questions and tell us the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Got it. First thing is, how do you define success? Happiness. Really? Yeah, because it's not money. There's a lot of wealthy people out there that are miserable. They go to work and they're miserable. So you define it as happiness now? I do. Did you always? No, it was always stuff. Cars, vehicles, things that came from working hard. That was success for me. Learn the hard way that that is not success. Success is happiness. Love it. How do you define wealth in three words or less? Freedom from a job. That's more than three words. That's good, though. They're short words, so I'll let you have it. Thank you. Freedom from a job. That's how you define wealth. I do. Because that leads to your happiness? It leads to my happiness. Absolutely. I like it. What's one book that has redefined how you see wealth? The Richest Man in Babylon. Hmm. And fill in the blank. My name is, and for me, the truth about wealth is. My name is Gerald Washington, and the truth about wealth is, it's not tied to money. That was good. Thank you so much, Mr. Washington. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I tried to get him to behave as much as I could. You guys know it's it's tough work. It's it's hard around these streets. <laughs> but I hope you really took something away from this episode. Primarily for those of you who are out here looking to build a business, please tap into those three different mindsets because we really do see this over and over again a lot with our own coaching clients. It's just this idea of starting a business that you become an employee of. There's not a bigger vision in mind and you really have to shift that if you want to grow your business, your brand, whatever it is you're working on uh, to that greater thing that you may see for yourself. So if you want to grab a copy of Gerald's book, you can check out his website, GeraldWashington.com or head to Amazon and look for Don't Just Start a Business, Build an Empire. Don't Just Start a Business, Build an Empire. And as a reminder, Make sure you grab a ticket to Redefining Wealth Live October 13th in Atlanta. Come join other Purpose Chasers for a wonderful conversation and just all around great time. Tickets are on sale at RedefiningWealthLive.com. Until next week, you know what it is. I want you to go live your life's purpose, find fulfillment, and earn more without ever chasing money. Talk to you later. Later.